Professor Dow, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome, Dimitri. I'm happy to be here. You know a whole lot more about the death penalty than I do. It's a niche field, let's say that. How did you get into it as an area of practice? It is a very niche field. And I got into it probably unlike anybody else who's in the niche field. And it's a pretty small universe of lawyers who do this work. I got into it by accident, basically. I was teaching a course on federal courts. And part of that course had a subsection that dealt with the writ of habeas corpus. And I had been interested with the writ of habeas corpus for years and years and years. I went to graduate school before I went to law school. So I thought I wanted to be a historian. And as you know, the writ of habeas corpus has very, very deep historical roots in the Anglo-English uh, legal tradition. And so I was teaching a course in habeas corpus. This would have been in the mid-1990s. And it just so happened that at that time, the most important habeas corpus cases that the Supreme Court was deciding were death penalty cases. I frequently tell people that if I were 20 years younger than I am, I wouldn't be a death penalty lawyer at all. I'd be one of the lawyers who was representing inmates at Guantanamo Bay, because in the aftermath of 9-11 and the so-called war on terror, I would say that most of the most important habeas cases have grown out of the war on terror. There's still a lot of death penalty cases, but it it's not the case anymore that death penalty cases are far and away the most important habeas cases. So that's really how I got into it. I was teaching a course on habeas corpus, and I thought to myself, you know, I think I would understand these cases a little bit better if I knew something about death penalty law, which I didn't at the time. I had been a lawyer who had a commercial practice before I went into academia. I wasn't a criminal lawyer, and I didn't have strong feelings about the death penalty, but I decided I would learn death penalty law because I would understand the habeas cases better. And at that time, remember, this is 30 years ago. At that time, you could really become a death penalty expert over a long weekend. You would just collect the dozen or 15 cases that had been decided by that point and read them, and you're a death penalty expert. And so I did that. And then the other thing that was happening, Dimitri, at the same time is that Congress had set aside money to fund what were then called resource centers. And what these resource centers were, were they were small offices of the very small number of lawyers who were experts in death penalty law and death penalty litigation. And Congress set them up in pretty much the Deep South, but also Texas. And the purpose of these resource centers was to recruit lawyers to represent inmates on death row because the inmates on death row in the United States. And at the time, there were probably plus or minus a thousand or maybe 1200 at the most. And they had only recently acquired a statutory right to have a lawyer represent them in federal habeas proceedings. And in many states, they still did not have a right to have a lawyer represent them in state habeas course proceedings. And so Congress decided it would set up these resource centers to recruit lawyers to represent the inmates so they didn't have to represent themselves. And it just so happened that I knew the people setting up that office in Texas. I had known them either from college or law school days. And so after I had spent this long weekend reading death penalty law, I asked the guy who was setting up the office in Texas at that time whether 
he might take me with him the next time next time he went to death row because i told him i thought i would understand the process even better if i could see some of the people on death row and so i went with him one day and we met a bunch of guys on death row in texas and it just so happened that one of the guys who we met had an execution date that was two weeks from the day that we met him and he didn't have a lawyer because his lawyer who had been a volunteer lawyer had recently written him a letter saying this is too stressful i can't do it anymore so my friend asked me if i would represent that inmate and what i told my friend was i said in the first place i don't really know how i feel about the death penalty i'm not really against it i wasn't exactly a rabid supporter but it was just not a philosophical issue on my radar screen and i said and besides that i don't have any idea what i'm doing i've never done one of these cases before and my friend said to me well let's answer the second question first you will do a better job than your client will do representing himself because at least you have access to a law library and a computer and as for the first issue the question isn't how you feel about the death penalty the question is how you feel about allowing the state to execute somebody who has appellate avenues left to explore uh, but has no lawyer and that to me was a compelling argument i i i was not necessarily against the death penalty at the time but i definitely was against the notion of having states execute people who had not not exhausted their uh, legal appeals and didn't have the benefit of counsel so i agreed to work on that one case and then one becomes two two becomes four you wake up 30 years later and you become a middle-aged death penalty lawyer but it was not an intentional decision I would say that I fell into it. You mentioned a second ago, it's my understanding that you were a supporter of the death penalty years and years ago. In my experience, that kind of change happens, the change that you went through over time as most yeah. people mature. I don't know why. Why did it happen for you? Yes, I think that you're right. I think that that's the sort of change that definitely happens over time. It's, of course, the exact opposite of the of the philosophical arc that I think is attributed to Winston Churchill. You know, I think that he once said, he said, you know, anybody who's not a liberal when he's young has no heart and anybody who's not a conservative when he's old has no brain. And I, I guess that maybe I had no heart and now I have no brain because it's been exactly the opposite arc. But what basically happened with me, Dimitri, was two things. And I refer to one of them as a as a lawyer moment and one of them as a as a human moment. Uh, the lawyer moment is that when I went to death row that first time, I really expected there to be monsters. There's this saying in death penalty law that the death penalty is supposed to be reserved for the worst of the worst. And so I had this picture in my head that all of these people I was going to see were going to be like crazy people like Charles Manson uh, or crazy people like Hannibal Lecter, the villain in the Jodie Foster movie, Silence of the Lambs. And I got to death row and all of these people basically looked like me. I mean, they, they did not look like me in the sense that most of them were black or brown, but they looked like me in the sense of just like a normal person. There was nothing monstrous looking about them. They were people who really did commit crimes that were completely indistinguishable from the crimes that people committed who were in the general prison population and not on death row. It's just that for some reason they got sentenced to death. It might have been because they had a bad lawyer. It might have been because they committed their crime in a county where the district attorney who makes the decision about which punishment to pursue was an avid death penalty supporter. Um, it might have been just because of plain old 
bad luck, but they were indistinguishable from people in the general prison population. And of course, when you think about it, Charles Manson wasn't even on death row at the time that I met these guys. He was in the general prison population, and Hannibal Lecter is a fictional character. So the caricature that I had in my brain consisted of two people, one of whom wasn't on death row and one of whom wasn't even a real person. And then the people who I actually met were people who could just as easily have found themselves serving sentences of 30 years or 35 years or 40 years or maybe or maybe life. And the reason I call that the lawyer's moment is because what I realized is that they were not on death row because they are the worst of the worst. They were on death row because of all of these other factors that if you believe in the idea that everybody is equal under law, should not have played a role in in their punishment. And look, I'm a I'm 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 a believer in capitalism. And so I understand that rich people are going to get better health care than poor people. I understand that rich people get to fly on private jets and poor people have to take the bus that rich people eat steak and poor people eat bologna sandwiches. I understand all that. And the price that we pay for a system that is really, really good is is inequality. But the one area of society where that equality is not supposed to matter is in the criminal justice system. It's just not supposed to matter. Does it matter? Yes, but it's not supposed to matter. And so that was the lawyer's moment for me where I realized how much it was mattering and how much it was mattering in a way that's very consequential. Then there's a second moment. And the, the second moment um, took just as long to develop. And I refer to it as the human moment. And the human moment is that when you represent death row inmates, you learn everything about them. When I'm representing somebody on death row, we make a family tree in my office and we try to go back three generations and we try to interview every person on that family tree who's still alive. So it includes moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents if they're still around. We want to interview spouses or partners or significant others. Lots of my clients have children. We try to interview every friend that they've ever had, every teacher that they ever had every prison guard that might have had contact with them on previous stays in the uh, prison, every friend that they grew up with, all of their gang buddies. I frequently tell my wife that I, I know some of my clients better than I know her. My wife is from Germany and most of her family is still in Germany and I haven't even met them. And we fly all over the world to interview uh, family members of our clients. And what happens when you do that is that you get to know your client as a human being. To be sure, a human being who did something absolutely horrible. I've been doing this a long time and I've represented, I don't know, 115, 120, maybe 125 guys. And there are eight of them out of that number who I believe were innocent or are innocent. And that means almost all of my clients are guilty of what the state accused them of. And yet I learn in the course of representing them, all of these other things about them. And so at that point, your client is a human being. Your client isn't just a mugshot in, in the newspaper where all that anybody knows about your client is this horrible crime. And they are horrible crimes um, that, that your client committed. And I think that once you know somebody as a human being rather than as the worst thing that person has ever done, um, it really opens up a different side of how you think about the death penalty, because it no longer allows you to delude yourself into thinking that you're executing just some rabid, worthless animal. You're executing somebody who did something that is reprehensible, but who has other characteristics, other qualities, 
who loves and is loved. And I think in almost all cases, not 100% of the cases, but in almost all cases, is capable of real change. And I've seen many of my clients, almost all of my clients, in fact, uh, go through real change while they're in prison. So that's the human moment. And you add together those two moments and they did, you're exactly right. It didn't happen all at once. It was a process. I remember, I remember early in my career as a death penalty lawyer, I would tell people, I'm not against the death penalty. I would say, I don't think my own client should be executed, but I don't care that much about your client. Um, and then eventually my, my, my view changed as a result of, I think, my contact with the system. You know, criminal defense lawyers, and perhaps you wouldn't deem yourself a traditional criminal defense lawyer in the sense that you don't represent people, generally speaking, uh, when they're charged with a crime. But criminal defense lawyers, including myself, have been at parties numerous times when we're asked the age-old question, how do you live with yourself? I've been asked that more times than, than I can say. I wonder if you've ever been asked that question. And if so, how have you responded? I'm asked that question all the time. I, I was asked it most recently yesterday. Um, and, and what I say is um, that I believe in the system is how I live with myself. And the system says that you're innocent until proven guilty. And the state has to prove that you're guilty. It's really that simple. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. And the way you get proven guilty is that the state has to prove it. How does the state prove it? It has to persuade 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that the person did what the state accuses that person of doing. And I think that if that system is to be a real system, as opposed to just a charade, it means that somebody needs to be pushing back against the state. It means that I believe in the adversary system. And so I, I don't have any qualms whatsoever about what I'm doing. I feel like I am helping. I'm one of, of tens of thousands of lawyers like you and criminal defense lawyers who are pushing back against the state. I mean, what crim criminal defense lawyers are literally the first line against authoritarianism. Because if you don't push back against the state, the state can do anything it wants. And that's the very definition of authoritarianism. So people say, why do you do what you do? I say, because I'm not an authoritarian. I think that the state should have to prove something before it can deprive somebody of his liberty. And the only way that you make the state prove something is by having an adversarial system where somebody is zealously uh, representing uh, the accused. I've, I've, I've never... Um, had any qualms whatsoever about forcing the state uh, to prove that my client did what they said that he did so that 12 reasonable jurors are persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt that he in fact did it. What is typically in your experience the toughest challenge in litigating these cases? Is it a legal challenge? I'm sure there are a ton of those. Or is it an emotional challenge? Or is it some combination of the two? I would say that it's both, at least it's both uh, for me. Um, uh, I, I'm a father. My, my, my wife and I have a, have, have a son, a recent college graduate. And I don't know if it's because of that, but the fact that I am a father um, certainly, it, certainly makes me especially sensitive to parents who have children who are murdered. And most murder victims have parents who are still alive 
not all, but most murder victims have parents who are still alive and they come to the legal proceedings. And when I'm representing a client in a courtroom and I look back over my shoulder and I see the parents or the loved ones, perhaps the children, perhaps the spouses of the person my client is accused of killing and is credibly charged with killing there, I, I feel genuine empathy for them. Um, and I don't want them to feel like I, as the lawyer of the person who's accused of homicide, don't fully feel their pain and don't respect their pain and don't respect that they want my client to be punished because I do respect all of that and I do have empathy for all of that. And that makes it that makes it, I think, very hard. Um, what I think makes it easier for me than a lot of other criminal defense lawyers and certainly a lot of other death penalty lawyers is simply because I've had the change of attitude that we were just talking about a few moments ago. So that when I encounter somebody who is a very strong death penalty supporter, that sentiment is not alien to me. It can be, I think, very hard to have to have empathy for a sentiment that is completely alien to you, but that sentiment is not alien to me. And so when somebody confronts me with that view, with the view that your client killed somebody he deserves to die, I can really hear that. And I can understand what that means. And I feel like I can engage with the person and talk about that, but it's absolutely hard. And if you don't see the world in black and white, and I don't see the world in black and white, then it can be hard emotionally, hard legally, hard socially um, to, to work on these kind of cases. But I continue to do it because of the reasons that we were just talking about a moment ago, which is that I think that if you believe in the system, somebody has to do it. It seems to me that one of the strongest arguments for, or rather against the death penalty, is that in a world in which wrongful convictions exist, and we are finding out new things about DNA with folks at the Innocence Project all over the country. Um, and obviously, this is a general statement. Uh, some capital murder cases don't have these complexities. But in a world where wrongful convictions are in the press every day, it seems, generally speaking, very tough to advocate for the death penalty as a concept, not case by case. Case by case, it gets difficult. But as yeah. a concept, to rectify those two things I think is difficult. I agree with that. I think that I think that um, one strategy that death penalty opponents have employed, and I'll tell you in just a moment why I think this is not a good strategy, but one strategy that death penalty opponents have employed is to point out the statistics. And the statistics are that since the modern death penalty era began with the execution of Gary Gilmore in Utah in 1977, um, there has been one person released from death row for every 11 people executed. Okay, so 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 there's about a 9% chance uh, that, that any given person on death row uh, is innocent. Now, I, I don't think anybody listening to your show, Dimitri, would get on an airplane if there was a nine, if there was a one in eleven chance 
that the airplane was going to crash before it reached its destination. Nobody would. They would. You would take the bus or you would ride a bicycle or you would do something, but you wouldn't get on the plane. And yet people are willing to tolerate that risk of error when it comes to the death penalty, which is a final, irrevocable, you can't fix it kind of punishment, because I think of a failure of imagination, which is that they cannot imagine that they or any of their loved ones are ever going to be in that position. So I can't imagine that I'm ever going to be on death row. I can't imagine that you're going to be on death row. I can't imagine that my son or my wife or any of my brothers is going to be on death row. So you know what? Yeah, maybe those statistics are sound, but I don't really care because they don't affect me and my life. Um, all, all that said, if you if you take a step back and you say, should we defend a system that has an error rate that is that egregious, no reasonable person would say yes. And so I think that is the reason that many death penalty opponents have settled on that strategy. Uh, the reason that the strategy leaves me a little bit uneasy um, is because the fact of the matter is that most people on death row aren't innocent. I mean, a lot are, but most of them aren't. And Justice Scalia used to say when he was on the court, he used to say, look, we don't get rid of prison because some innocent people get sent to prison. Um, we, we, we don't say we're never going to fight a war because some innocent civilians are going to be killed in the war. There are certain prices that we pay as a society in order to have a punishment regime that we think is otherwise justified. And so for Justice Scalia, the death penalty punishment regime was otherwise justified. And so for him, the risk of error is simply a price that you pay. It's the price of doing business. You know, when we build skyscrapers, we know with actuarial certainty that a certain number of construction workers are going to die for every certain number of floors that are built. When we build highways, we know with actuarial certainty that a certain number of highway workers are going to die for every mile of paved road. And yet we keep doing it because we've decided as a society, the, the price is, is worth it. And so given all of that, at least given that that's how I see the decision-making calculus that our society uses, I really have had the most success when I try to get people not to seek the death penalty against my clients um, by telling them how much it's going to cost. I say, look, um, my client will plead guilty and go to prison for the rest of his life. And in order for you, Mr. District Attorney or Ms. District Attorney, to accomplish that result, it's going to cost you $20,000 because that's how much has been incurred in legal fees so far. And I say, but if we're going to go to trial and we're going to have a death penalty trial, we're going to have to have an investigation that's going to last a year and a half or two years. And then we're going to have to have a really long trial because jury selection takes a long time. The trial takes a long time. And then after that, we're going to have all of this layers of appeals. And by the time you finally get to execute my client, if you even get to execute my client, because I might get a verdict that doesn't result in death, or even if there's a death verdict, I might prevail on appeal. But if everything goes your way and you get to execute my client in 6.9 or 7.4 years or whatever it is, you're going to have spent two and a half or three or four million dollars along the way. So what would you rather do? Spend two and a half or three million or four million dollars and get to carry out an execution in seven years from now, or or spend twenty thousand dollars and know today that my client is going to be in prison for the next forty years. And I have had the experience that district attorneys in counties where they actually 
care about the budget are very moved by that argument. If you're from a big county and you've got more money than you know what to do with and you think that getting another death verdict in a high-profile case is going to help you win re-election, then yeah, that argument is not going to be very persuasive. But if you're not worried about re-election and if you don't have a bottomless bank account, then the argument that it's just a simple waste of money, I think, persuades a lot of people. When I talk to conservative civic groups in Texas and elsewhere, and I just put the spreadsheets up on the PowerPoint uh, presentation, that argument has much more impact than anything that I could say about what philosophers from John Locke to the present have to say about the morality of executions. One of your books is entitled Things I've Learned from Dying, a book about life. What have you learned? <laughs> um, so that book weaves together three stories. It weaves together the story of one of my clients, uh, the story of my father-in-law who died of metastatic melanoma when he was very young. He was only 60 when he died, but he and I were very close. And then the story of one of my dogs who died from liver failure and all those things were happening at the same time. And I don't know if there's a single thing that I would say that I learned that I try to convey in that book, but if there is an overarching theme to what I've learned, it's that relationships that human beings have with others, whether those others are their family or their friends or their acquaintances, or in my case, their pets, because I love my dogs as much as I love people, um, those relationships have have natural arcs and natural rhythms. And one of the things that I've learned is that it is traumatic for the natural arc or natural rhythm to be interrupted. So for the relationship um, to end prematurely, uh, so to speak. And so when my father-in-law dies of metastatic melanoma when he's 60, uh, when he was planning on living and hiking in the backcountry and camping in the backcountry and whitewater kayaking on huge rivers until he was 75 or 80, that's a relationship that ends too early. Um, the story I tell about my dog is that I, I agreed to give her an untested medicine. Um, and that was a relationship that ended too early. And the relationship with my client I talk about 40% of that book, I think, is about just one of my clients. And there was no question that he committed the murder. He had been a, he had been a gang member in Dallas, and it was an absolutely horrible murder. He and three fellow uh, gang members uh, murdered an elderly woman basically to steal her car. And I felt like my relationship with him ended too early. I, 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 I believed that I should have prevailed in his case. And I certainly believed that I should have managed to keep him alive for longer so that I would have had more time to prevail, and yet I didn't. And so what those cases all have in common is that my relationship with somebody or something, in the case of a dog, ended in what seemed to me to be an abrupt and too early fashion. And in all of those cases, um, I felt trauma from that. 
And I felt trauma because it had not um, ended in a way that I thought was the natural life um, of that of that relationship. And so I don't think that that is unique to me. I think that I think that many people uh, have trauma when they have a relationship with somebody, and that relationship ends with an explosion rather than with a natural tapering and termination. How important is it in your line of work, uh, our line of work, to humanize people? I'd say there's nothing more important than than that. In fact, when I was just describing a moment ago, my human moment that resulted in my thinking that the death penalty was wrong, not just for my clients, but for other people too. It's exactly for the reason that you just said, and I am glad you used that word, humanize, because I don't think that I used it when I was talking to you earlier, but that's really, of course, what we're doing, because the, the public has an image of people who commit crimes as not human, as inhuman, as animals. Prosecutors will refer to criminal defendants as rabid animals, as rabid dogs, as inhuman. And the most important thing I think that I can do as a lawyer representing death row inmates, and I don't know if you would agree with me that it is the most important thing, but I'm confident you would agree with me that it is among the most important things, is to cause people, force people to see your client as a human being who made a mistake rather than as somebody who's not human at all. And that can be that can be much harder, much, much harder uh, than it sounds. And it can be harder than it sounds for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that your clients, your Dimitri's clients, my clients, are very often going to look really different from the jurors. Uh, they're going to be younger. Um, they're going to be darker hued. They're probably going to have a lot more visible tattoos. Um, they might look sullen. They might look angry. Um, they're not going to have resumes that had them doing really well in high school and getting college scholarships and having professionals degrees. They're, they're not going to have professions. So they're going to look really different from the people who are judging them. And I think that it is very hard. I think that lawyers earn their fees when they can assist people who are very, very different from their clients in seeing their clients as human beings who have dignity and who are worthy of respect and who might have done something absolutely horrible, uh, but are still human beings with dignity. Professor, this discussion was just as compelling as I thought it'd be. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your stories, your views. It's very much appreciated. It was absolutely my pleasure and thank you for having me.